to open the word of our risen Lord and Savior to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is our text this morning. We're going to be looking at the chapter, verse 1 to 28. If you are able, I would like to ask that you would stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 73, we'll begin with verse 1 and read through the chapter. Let's hear the word of our God together. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. O oh, great and sovereign God, we come to you through Christ. And our Lord, as we open up your word during this time, 
Father, would you lay us bare before you? Through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you take your word and apply it where no man can? Take it deep into our hearts and our minds and our life. Father, we pray humbly that you would bring change to us through your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would do all these things for your glory and your praise. It's in the name of our risen, victorious Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you well know, the book of Psalms contains a wide range of emotions. There are psalms in this book of exuberant praise, thanking God for His majesty and His greatness. Psalms like 23 that we have been in the past few weeks, they are comforting to us. They are encouraging. Wisdom psalms are here that instruct us and are heavy on teaching and teaching us about the Lord. There are even such a category of psalms called imprecatory psalms. These psalms basically call on God to do bad things to the enemies of God. Things like smashing their teeth, breaking their arms, and even dashing their little ones against the rocks. The range of emotions in this book are vast and many. Today we come to a psalm where someone is struggling, struggling with difficulties in perceiving and understanding the world and the promises of God. The author is going to record these struggles and how he maneuvered through them, how he got through these difficulties. As you see in the title here, it says, A Psalm of Asaph. So Asaph is the author of this particular psalms. In fact, the next 10 psalms from 73 to 83 were written by Asaph. King David and Asaph worked closely together. Asaph was a hymn writer in the temple and those who worshiped there. So he was in a place of leadership. Asaph worked with the sons of Korah. You might see them in the titles as well, who are all musicians that wrote these psalms. Remember, this is the Hebrew hymnal. So these psalms would be sung. They're put to music and sung. So Asaph was a leader and he wrote this song. He wrote this psalm. Asaph here in 73 voices a major struggle that he faced in life. Asaph shows great honesty here in this psalm. There was a supposed contradiction that Asaph saw in this life, and he was struggling with that contradiction. It had to do with the prosperity of the wicked and the seeming poverty of the righteous. What Asaph saw with his eyes didn't match up with what he knew to be true. He knows that God is good to his people, as we're going to see in verse 1, yet Asaph did not see himself as being a recipient of God's goodness. Instead, he saw the arrogant and the wicked prospering. 
Let me just say at the outset here, I believe it's a sign of a mature believer to be able to share their struggles with others that they face in life. Asaph is going to share that struggle that he is facing with us here, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a flow and a movement here in Psalm 73. Asaph is going to state some truth. He's going to state the problem that he has. He's going to state what he sees with his eyes. And then we could say, looking on this side of the cross, he's going to hold his problems up to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the cross, and his perspective is going to be changed. Let's look at this psalm together. First, we're going to begin with Asaph's confession in verse 1 to 2. Asaph's confession. This is uh, kind of a summary statement as it were, almost like stating the conclusion at the beginning, at least acknowledging what is to be true. So Asaph states a fact he knows to be true. He says, truly God is good to Israel, in verse number one, to those who are pure in heart. Pure in heart here refers to those whom God has saved by His grace and those that are now living in obedience to the rules of God, seeking to be obedient to His laws and instruction. This is talking about the saved person who desires to please God with their life. Purely, they are devoted to God. That is who is meant here by Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel. Who is Israel? Well, those who are pure in heart, those who are seeking after God and His instruction. In verse 2, Asaph confesses what had almost happened to him. Look at what it says in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In the Bible, our lives are often compared to walking along a path, aren't they? God's Word is a light unto our Path. It's likened to walking on a path, and the Christian life being a life that walks on a path that ends in eternal salvation. So when Asaph speaks of his feet almost stumbling or nearly slipping off the path, he's talking about here a major problem of him almost slipping off of the path of being a follower of Jesus Christ, of being a covenant keeper. This is a major crisis that he was facing. It's not something small or petty. He's struggling in his faith. He was having a crisis, a time of doubting about the Christian life and the goodness of God to those who follow after him. He was just struggling, struggling with believing in God and seeing what lies in front of him. Have you ever been there before? Ever been through a season in your life or a time in your life where if you would be honest, you would just say, yes, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm having just times of doubt, seeing how what I know God's Word says to be true, but yet what I see in front of me in this world, I'm having a difficulty aligning those two things together. Well, this was Asaph's confession. God is good to his people but my feet are about to slip off the path. In the next verses, verse 3 to 15, we see Asaph's dilemma. That's his confession. Now we see his dilemma. And in verse 3 to 14, he's going to describe his struggles. 
What was going on? Well, now he's going to tell us. First, in verse 3, we see that Asaph envied the wicked. Asaph envied the wicked. Look at verse 3. He says, for, that is, he's describing here what his problem was. He's explaining it for, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph saw in his life what the wicked had that he did not have, and he wanted that same prosperity. Let me just say here that wicked, just like we saw a few weeks ago in Psalm 1, wicked doesn't just refer to people who are particularly evil and dangerous, although it does refer to them. It just speaks generally of all who did not submit to God. Okay, that's what's meant by wicked here. It's just a general phrase of those, we would say, who are not Christians. Asaph saw their life and he envied it. He saw the arrogant. He saw the wicked. He saw that they had health. They had wealth. They had good things going for them while he did not. Asaph is trying to live for the Lord, but... He looked over at the arrogant person, the person who's prideful, the person who is prosperous, and he began to see what they had and want what they had, yet he didn't have it himself, even though he's trying to be obedient to God. We oftentimes struggle with this exact same thing in small ways and large ways, whether we want to admit it or not. We might be tempted to think, how come God gives this person that beautiful home while I live in this home? How come their stuff doesn't break and my stuff breaks? How come the health of those who don't trust in God is holding up, yet I'm trusting in God and my health is failing? How come life just seems to go good for them, but it doesn't for me? How come that family who doesn't care a thing for God, how come they're able to have children and bring them into their family, and I love the Lord and I'm not able to have children? How come this person who loves God died young, and this person who's a terror to all just seems to live and prosper? How come I try and live right and things are a struggle in my life? Yet those who aren't living for the Lord, they just seem to go on week in and week out and be happy and prosperous. That little root of envy, seed of envy, excuse me, the seed of envy began to take root in his heart. He saw what others had. He didn't have it. He started looking at those things, wanting those same things. It was beginning to plant in his heart and take root. Second, in verse 4 to 11, Asaph describes the wicked here. These are further explaining and talking about the wicked and the arrogant. Verse 4 mentions the physical well-being of the wicked. It says they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. 
Now, granted, you probably wouldn't look at somebody and say, whoa, I'm so envious of them. Look how fat they are. I wish I was that fat. Don't think in those ways. In those days, the poor man was actually skinny because he couldn't afford to be fat. And so fat here doesn't mean what we might think. It just means healthy. They couldn't have enough food, so they were literally skinny. But the rich, they had plenty of these things, plenty of food. They would be larger than the poor man. Verse 5 speaks of their life generally being well. They're not in trouble. They're not taken advantage of. Asaph saw the prosperous wicked getting by in life without much struggle. And they had money to spare. They're generally healthy. They're flourishing. But this supposed blessing leads the wicked man to pride. In verse 6 to 9, we see it. Speaking of them, he says, Therefore, pride is their necklace. So the wicked man is growing in his strength and his money, his health and all those things. Pride is his necklace. Violence covers him as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Seems like these wicked that he sees get away with whatever they want. They're very proud. They're violent. They take advantage of others. None can stop them. In this life, rich folks are often able to get away with things just because they have money. Verse number seven, he says, their eyes swell out through fatness. Again, this is a sign of prosperity. This verse recalls my mind to the days where we spent in Mongolia, where literally as missionaries there, people's eyes would become yellow and they would have uh, some thickness growing on their eyes. And I asked the doctor, what is going on here? What is this some problem or something? He says, no, they eat so much fat that it literally deposits on their eyes. If you were there, you would be offered fat because that's the best part of the animal. And that's what you would have served to you. Verse 9 says their tongue struts through the earth. These people speak arrogantly. Self-conscious, they're a picture of pride. Verse 10, it says, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the most high? These wicked people are seen as leaders. Others see their folly Others see the wicked prospering and they want that same thing, so they follow along. They said, let me be their apprentice. Let me follow these wicked people so that I, in return, can get what they have. Verse 11 really shows the height of the wicked man's arrogance. They mock God by saying, how does God know what I am doing? Do you think God knows what is going on in my life? Can one say a more arrogant thing than that? You can see this prideful, arrogant, wicked man. And verse 12 sums up what Asaph thinks of the wicked. Verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. It's as if Asaph is just looking at this category enviously, and he just describes them of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. He just sits back in his poverty that he sees and looks at them. 
Their bank accounts grow, they continue to flourish, they seem to have everything they want, and here I am trying to live in accordance to God's laws, yet I'm struggling. Asaph sees all of this and he comes to a wrong conclusion, an honest conclusion, but a very wrong conclusion. Look at verse 13 and 14. Listen to what he says. He's being honest here. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, Asaph wanted good to happen to him, like all of us do. But when he saw the prosperity of the person that doesn't please the Lord, the person who doesn't live in obedience to God's standard, when he saw this man prospering, he wanted what that man had. He coveted. He envied. He wanted it for himself. He even thought here, why be a Christian if those who are not Christians get what I want? <laughs> you see what Asaph is saying here, don't you? I try to follow the Lord and be obedient, but yet I'm just receiving difficulties and trials. He says he's rebuked every morning. That's pretty rough. It's hard enough to get rebuked once a week, isn't it, by someone? Much less to wake up and be rebuked every morning. And Asaph is just being honest here. He's showing his struggles. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not putting on a fake fun, uh, Sunday school or a quip hour facade. He can't understand this dilemma. But yet he's coming at it from a Christian. Look at what he says in verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, that is like what I just said, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You see, although Asaph is very willing to share his struggles, he was not going to share those struggles, we could say, from the pulpit. Or he's not going to come to the congregation and he's not going to say, you know what, this whole Christian thing, this whole living in obedience to God thing just doesn't pay off. So I don't encourage you to do that. Just seek happiness. Just do whatever you want to do in life that will make you happy and get you what you want. He had this struggle in his mind and he shared it with others. You might say, as I have thought, well then why in the world did Asaph record it in Scripture if he didn't want anybody to hear it? <laughs> if he said, I will speak this way, then I would have betrayed. Well, you just did and you, now you told everybody. Well, if he ended it right here, then he would have betrayed, but there's some more verses. There's some more verses. So look at point number three is the turning point. Asaph's turning point in verse 16 and 17. We come to the major transition in the psalm. Asaph has taken quite a while to get here by describing the wicked and speaking about them, just being honest. And he comes to verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You know, trying to understand these things that don't line up and contemplating it are sometimes difficult in our life. Things that we can't understand and come to a conclusion on in a day, but things we might be struggling with in a season. And he's saying, how, 
Just how could this be? It's a wearisome task. I, I don't know how to understand that God is seemingly blessing the wicked person who doesn't care a thing about his laws and I'm trying to live in obedience and, and I'm receiving rebuke and difficulty and I wanna be blessed. And he can't bring these two things together and it was wearisome. But when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What does Asaph do when he can't find the question to his puzzling dilemma? What does he do? I went to the sanctuary of God. And in the sanctuary of God, then I discerned the answer to the problem. Reading back from the New Testament, we could say Asaph went to church. Asaph went to the temple. He would see an animal being slit of the throat and blood pouring out for the forgiveness of sins. Asaph would hear the word of God being read and spoken to him. Asaph would hear the songs, maybe some of which he had written, being played and sung in the gathering of the believers. Then Asaph began to understand the dilemma to his problem. Verse 17 gives us the clue, Asaph discerned their end. He finally realized what would happen to those who rejected God. Now Asaph is able to see things properly. This is point number four. Asaph's understanding is corrected. Verse 18 throughout the end of the chapter. Now he sees the wicked and they're being blessed in the proper light. Now he understands how come the wicked prosper while God's people have trouble in this life. The last part of verse 17 tells us that Asaph discerned the end of the wicked. He saw the end to the path that they are walking and the end of their path leads to destruction. First in these verses, we see that Asaph understood the future of the wicked. Look at how he describes it in verses 18 to 20. The them here is referring to the wicked, the arrogant. Look at verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Remember, Asaph is the one that was slipping. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Riches in the biblical light are compared to a slippery slope. Those that reject God and have money do not think that they need anything. 
They're rejecting God. We know that riches, obviously, they're a blessing from the Lord and they're neutral. But those that reject God and they have money in their life oftentimes can lead them to arrogance because they don't think they have a need. They can do for themselves and they carry that over with God. They don't think they need to be forgiven of their sins. They think they'll be fine on their own. And Asaph realized that although the wicked seemed like they were secure, they're the ones that are on the slippery slope. In all actuality, the wicked rich are like the beauty of gold dust. One small puff from the Lord and they will vanish. They're like a dream. They seem so secure. They seem so solid. And then they're gone. You awake and it's gone. It's like a phantom. It's here and it's gone in a moment. Second, Asaph gains a new perspective on his thoughts in verse 21 and 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, that is, towards God. When my soul, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. It was like a beast. Asaph now looks upon his actions in light of what he's now realized from the word of God and the truth of God. And he says about himself that he was like an animal more than a man. Because Asaph was then setting himself up in a place to tell God what he should do and whom he should bless and not bless. He says, I was brutish. I was ignorant. He was like an animal in that he had no real awareness of God. How often we act so similar, thinking that we know best how God should do things. And we get mad when he doesn't do things how we think he should do things. We're really acting just like a brute animal when we think and act like that. Third, Asaph has a new awareness of God's presence in his life and a realization that he is truly blessed of God. He has a new awareness of God's presence in his difficulties, in his life, in a realization that he is the one that is truly blessed. Through all these struggles, Asaph recognizes that God was always with him. Through all of his doubt, God never turned Asaph over to his sin. God was faithful in his persevering love to Asaph. Listen to the beautiful words that Asaph now says in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Nevertheless. What a beautiful word. What a gracious concept of God that even in his times of doubt and struggle and envy, nevertheless, God was continually with him. God was holding his hand. Verse 24 says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. God's counsel to him 
helped Asaph see things clearly. And he saw that this life, his life that he was living, would end in glory. Struggles now, glory, paradise later. God would receive me to glory, he says, to eternal paradise. Asaph grew more and more aware of God's presence in his life, especially through the trying times. While he wasn't holding God tightly, God was holding him tightly. And God never let him go. Through the struggles that you've been in in your life, can you not relate to that verse of how during difficulties in life, it seems like, just with your eyes looking at it, it seems like maybe God has let you go through that. You wonder, where is the Lord in this? What is he doing in this? I don't understand, I can't see it. And then you get through that trial, you look back on that trial, you say, God was with me all the way. God's hand was actually holding me and leading me through and God was sustaining me and God was always there for me. Asaph realized how truly blessed of God that he was. Even in his struggles, look at verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph comes to this conclusion that he would rather have God and trouble than no God with no trouble. Asaph believed what Psalm 84.10 had to say. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the mansions of wickedness. Asaph got to the point where he wanted God more than he wanted prosperity. He got to the place in his life where he desired God above everything else. The things that he was wanting, that he envied of the wicked, he set those things aside. The blessings that he wanted, the way life wanted to be for him, how he wanted things to come about in his life. He set those aside and he said, I want God more than those things. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. May God bring us to that same point in the struggles and the things that we face when life doesn't work out how we want it to, things don't come about how we think they best should, to where we can come to a place and say, I want God more than I want life to be going good for me. You see, Asaph's perspective completely changed. God became his desire, not the prosperity of the wicked. 
when his faith was weak, he knew that God was strong. When his grip on God was limp, God's hold on him was firm. He looked back on it and he said, God will see me through. He always sees his people through because God is our strength. Our hearts may fail, but God will keep us strong. In fact, in our weakness, the strength of God is shown in our lives. Our flesh and our heart fail. They lose hope and become discouraged so quickly. Let's be honest, faith in God, in, in different season, it just ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Sometimes it's up and strong, and I think maybe if we're honest, we're saying this is sometimes we're just cruising and it's kind of weak. But praise God that it relies on Him, not us, to be kept. He is the strength of our hearts. He is the rock of our salvation. God is our portion forever. Last two verses here are like a conclusion. Verse 27, he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See the contrast in those two verses of being far from God and being near to God? Asaph just stepped back and he looked at things and he says, the wicked, they're prospering, it seems, they're doing well, but they're far from God. And what is their end? Their end is eternal punishment. But those who are near God will be received into glory. How do we draw near to God? Well, first and foremost, it's through Jesus Christ. We draw near to God through the instruction of God's word, which holds out our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we come to him confessing that we are sinners, confessing that we deserve wrath and punishment, just like the arrogant wicked, because that's in reality what we are. God gives us his grace because Jesus Christ took our punishment on the cross. We can never live up or do enough good to please God. Instead, we have to trust not in our own works, but in the works of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. Trust in him and be changed and live differently. Live in obedience to the word of God. That's what it means to be near him, to make God your refuge. In conclusion this morning, I just have a couple of final exhortations to give. First is it's absolutely vitally necessary that believers seek God and not focus on the allurements of this world. 
It's vitally necessary that we as believers seek God and not a focus of the allurements of the things that we like in this world. Be disciples of Jesus, seek after God, pursue holiness, desire Him. That is, Pastor Adam preached a few weeks ago on God's will for our life, being righteousness of pursuing that. Make that your pursuit. You can see where Asaph does that, doesn't he? He began to pursue God more than these things that he wanted. Secondly, the church should be a place where we hear about sin and judgment and faith and paradise. That's what Asaph heard in the gathered people of God that kept his foot from slipping. He saw the end, the judgment that was coming upon the wicked. And we need to hear those same things in church today. Some people shy away from those things. In fact, the doctrine of hell, there's uh, all sorts of attacks upon God's word. Even the doctrine of hell now is trying to be uh, a lessened into something different that the Bible teaches. But we need to be clear in stating what the Bible and God's word says. Those that don't trust in God will be punished forever in a real place called hell. And if you turn away from Christ, that's the end of that path. How unloving of us would it be to say something different, to try to soften that? Do you really think that after you die and you see things as God's word says them, that there's a heaven and a hell, do you really think that you uh, would want to go back into life and downplay God's judgment? No, you would be warning people. You would be imploring them to trust in Christ. Third thing, we need to discern that this life is not all there is. Brothers and sisters, this life is temporary. And our coming to Christ and living in obedience to Him will last for eternity. This life is a vapor, it's a puff of smoke, it's here, it's gone. You can see that. My 30s are shot, they're gone. I'm pretty much half dead, right? Not much time remaining. It's here, it's gone. Life is temporary, eternity is not. Trust in Christ. Look on your life through the lens of eternity. I think we're on number four, the last thing. Do not neglect corporate worship. Do not neglect what we're doing here this morning, corporate worship. Asaph had troubles in his life, inconsistencies that he could not put together. And where did he go? To the gathered place of God. What's the temptation when you're going through difficulties and trials and struggles? What's the temptation is to run away from God, to run away from God's people. Let us be exhorted through the example of Asaph Bring your troubles and your difficulties and your trials. Bring them to God. Bring them to the gathered people of God. It's the devil himself who would rather have you stay away from this place. Come to corporate worship. 
bring your weariness to God. Come asking God to give you understanding to the things you can't put together. Listen, it is often in our corporate worship that God changes us. Let's not neglect it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the example of Asaph and these words, these holy inspired words. Father, forgive us when our faith is weak. Forgive us, Father, when we go through trials and difficulties. Oh Lord, we would ask that you would hold us, that you would hold on and keep us Father, we praise you for your grace and your mercy in our life. Father, I pray now you know what each and every one of us is facing at this very moment. You know those things. Father, help us to bring those troubles to you and help us to live in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even when there's difficulties and trials, may we come to you. Indeed, Lord, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus. May we look full in his wonderful face. Oh, Father, and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.